0: Welcome to The Daily Bolster. Each day, we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to The Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster. And I am excited to be here in deep today with Nick Mehta. Uh, Nick is uh, the CEO of Gainsight, a company that he started uh, 10 years ago. 10 years ago. 10 years ago. that uh, has scaled to about 1,200 employees, uh, is an absolutely role model CEO, and, uh, and it's a role model SaaS company, and I'm sure many of you heard of it. Um, Nick is one of my favorite uh, fellow CEOs and someone I've always enjoyed sharing notes with and talking to over the years. Um, so Nick, thank you for being here today.
1: Really appreciate you having me here. It's going to be a fun conversation.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's start really quickly with the arc of your journey. So you've been doing Gainsight for 10 years, work backwards. Like what inspired you to start Gainsight? And then just like real quick hits of the things that got you from college to there.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give the quick, uh, chronologically forward narrative because you'll, you'll see how it sort of fits together and you probably feel the same way. You kind of, your career path is a little bit of a random walk, but maybe in hindsight, there's a little bit of a pattern. So yeah, I've always grew up around technology. My dad was, ran some small tech companies. So I, I was always around like computers and programming. I always wanted to be in Silicon Valley. And luckily I'm living my dream of being in tech. And I, I started that dream actually doing a, a startup in college in the late 90s where we, we founded a company from our dorm room selling golf clubs over the web called chipshot.com. It was an early dot com e-commerce pioneer and actually raised venture capital, almost went public. We were all these young kids, but missed the IPO window and didn't end up making any money, but it was a great experience. But that brought me to Silicon Valley, and at that point, as you we, you and I've talked about before, this was the doldrums of the, the post dot com crash, right? Two thousand one, two thousand two, and I had to get like a, a real job, even though I'd done my own startup. I was like, I, I was basically just like like a kid out of college, and so I went to be a product manager at a uh, you know mid sized public software company called Veritas Software, and um, I you know this is on premise software. You'd sell this product and. It, people would install it, and you know, it was their their problem at that point, right? They would they would use it or not It didn't really matter. The concept of customer success didn't exist back then, right? Because people were paying upfront for their software. And then I went to run my first SaaS company. I got hired to be the CEO of a kind of a, a little bit of a turnaround SaaS company called Live Office, which I ran. Um, and then we sold uh, about three and a half years later, and we sold it actually to Symantec, um, uh, the you know security software company. And so in running that company, this company Live Office one of the things I learned was how different things are as you go from the on-prem model to the cloud model. And one of the big differences was you can't just like sell to your customers and walk away, right? You actually have to make sure they're using it, they're getting value. Otherwise they won't stay with you. Right? You it's have new. to
0: make sure they renew.
1: They renew, exactly. All that, right? And yeah. so I didn't realize that there was a whole profession around this. We uh, We were kind of making it up as we went, maybe similar to the early days of return path for you. And so we were just figuring it out but I sold my company. I was like, there's a problem to be solved here. And I was uh, you know, spending some time thinking about doing a startup, met two other guys who had a quite similar idea through Battery Ventures who they had just pitched. And we teamed up and launched Gainsight in 2013.
0: Got it. And um, uh, yeah, that's really funny. I don't think I knew about Chipshot. So I definitely bought something from Chipshot. Yay, hey, awesome. No question about that. There you go. Uh, and I, I did not realize that was you. That is very cool.
1: Awesome. Many, um, many people bought. I think we we sold a lot of stuff at a big loss. So I'm sure many people bought from us at that point. So
0: I uh, yes, the days of having negative gross margin, exactly. I think, are far behind us. So. Exactly. Um, so one of the things I really remember um, about one of our conversations early on in your in your tenure at Gainsight, a couple of years in, um, you know, you said to me, man, I just love this. Like I just want to keep doing this forever. Right. And one of the things that's so interesting about the scaling journey, which a lot of the people that um, are going to be listening to this um, are on that scaling journey, is they don't know what it's like yet. Like they know what it's like to start it. They know what it's like to get it to somewhere ten employees, twenty employees, hundred employees. Very, very few people in the tech world get something over a thousand employees. Right? Usually, you're just taken out. If you're doing well, usually you get taken out before that. Um, obviously, you know they're a handful to get to where you have, but. I'd love to kind of focus the conversation today on, on what that journey has been like both for you and like your role nice. as the CEO and the founder, and then also for the company. Um, and I think r- rather than try to ask like, well, what was it like to go from 10 to a hundred and a hundred, yeah. whatever. Um, let me focus on some topic areas and you can kind mm-hmm. of walk through for each topic area. Like, all right, what was it like to scale that thing? And, um, you know, I guess the first, the first question is like, what, what has it been like to scale culture? Yeah. Um, And you and I did the short form of the podcast, which, which will have aired before this one does about like the quick tips on scaling culture, but you know, what, what was it like running the 10 person company up to the 1200 person company in terms of, um, of the culture of what it felt like to go to work every day um, you know, what it felt like to go from knowing everyone to not knowing everyone, um, those kinds of things.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you there, there definitely are, um, there's some visceral changes, per, probably to some extent, the more layers of the company you have in terms of depth. I think that's probably one of the biggest variables um, in the beginning, you know, you know, we actually were, I think very similar to return path, very values driven from the beginning. And so I, and, and having run another company before, I was like, you know, I want to do our values now. Like when we were just literally you know, right. 14, 15 people, you know, I remember, us sitting around and saying, "Okay, we've got the." We initially started with three values: golden rule, um, success for all, and childlike joy. Those are those are our three early early values, and then we iterated a little bit. Actually, if you hear, hear those three values: golden rule, success for all, childlike joy, I joke that we could. That sounds like we're running a bed and breakfast. So we should we should have something that's also business oriented. So we added in. Um, stay thirsty, my friends, and uh, Shoshin, which is the Japanese word for beginner's mind. And so we did those values early on when literally the people creating the culture and the people living the culture are the same people, right? So that's a subtle thing because later on, you know, employees are coming on and they're still influencing the culture, they're evolving it, but they're not creating it. And I think there's a big change that happens. So when you can fit everyone in a room to actually figure out your values, versus, you know, when you've got, you know, a thousand people, it's a pretty big difference. So that was, I think one big kind of era of the company was the kind of the creation of the culture, right? Then, then what ends up happening for us is there was a, um, there was a, a phase where it kind of organically just stayed true. Like we didn't do anything. It just, it just sort of, everyone got it and the water, you know, the new people learn, you know, through the existing people, but everyone we were at that point we weren't totally office bound, but we had some offices, and you know, we, you could hear and that you would you would talk to people in the hallways, all the classic stuff, right? How culture gets kind of shared. And then I remember, like, actually pretty vividly, I remember talking to a salesperson. Maybe we're two, three hundred people at this point. A salesperson who you know was leaving, and and he's like, Oh, gainsight, it's like one of the best places I've ever worked. And I was like, So why are you leaving? And, and he's like. Well, I just don't see eye to eye with my manager. And so that's kind of the the same aphorism that you know all about, which is people join companies and quit managers, right? And so you're like, oh, wow, this culture doesn't mean a thing if it's not carried forward at the next level. And so we added, started institutionalizing things. like For example, we, we refer to our culture as like human first business, and we created a thing called human first leadership as a training class. And so training managers on how to actually try to carry that culture forward, right? right. And all the other stuff, you know, new employee onboarding on culture, all the things that you know you and I have talked about before. And so you try to kind of institutionalize and scale that. Um, and so that was like, I think a second phase is we just started thinking about some systems to make this more scalable at the manager level in particular. So that was kind of, I would say that first chapter break, we can, we can I'll keep going, but I'll pause there.
0: Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's, that is the journey, right? It's from creating it to watching it flourish to figuring out how to institutionalize it.
1: That's right. Um, uh, I think the, th- the third phase for us was, you know, I think companies naturally go through phases where you have a lot of hiring um, and maybe there's just all of a sudden a lot that people have to be brought up to speed. Right. And so for us, it was actually interesting convergence, like everyone went through, right. Which is crazy growth, you know, from like, Oh, you know, basically three, four years ago to now, and you know, more, you know, h- hired hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, but we had moved to a fully distributed model, so none of them were seeing each other, right? And so I think this third phase then becomes: how do you quickly kind of create like the same culture, but with a whole set of new people? Because I think over time, you know, especially in tech, there's, and especially the last few years, there's an incredible amount of the company that ends up being new. You know, because we had the mix, a lot of people had a lot of attrition with the quote unquote grace resignation and a ton of hiring. And the net was, you look around, you're like, wait, so those people from those early photos, I I don't know, I have some of that melancholy feeling where like, there's early photos. You're like, wait, there's like two people. There's like me and like, there's, I can find the two other people in that photo that are still here and everyone else is new. And so then you're like, okay, now you've, you got to remember that as a CEO, you've been on this journey 10 years and- they're brand new. I, I wrote this like blog post a while back. That it was, it's actually kind of random, but I was I had this dream, and I was was dreaming about how like like you know they say the CEO job is lonely, and, and no one cries a tear for CEOs, nor they nor should they. um But it is lonely, and part of the loneliness is if you're really passionate about it. I, I, I had this dream where the analogy was you're like a train conductor, and you're, you've kind of like handcuffed yourself to the train wheel, so you're not leaving. But for a lot of the people, the, the train is a means to get to a destination.
0: They get on, they get on. Yeah,
1: they, they're, they're going back for their MBA. They're moving for their family. They got a new job. They got their first CRO job, which is awesome. You're so excited. And but you have to remember all these new people come on the train and they're just super excited to be on the train. And you, every time you have to greet them with that excitement, even though knowing that, like, gosh, you said goodbye to so many other people that have left the train. Right. And so that this third phase, it really hit me the last few years of like, okay, you've got to get great at being great for new people. Like, and remember that this company isn't about the long timers only, right? I I remember there was a story about like an intern, this is like one of these famous Steve Jobs stories, an intern emailed Steve Jobs, uh, an Apple intern, and he said, hey, it's the 20 something anniversary of Apple, maybe 25th or whatever. Uh, Do you want to do a party? And (laughs) Steve Jobs wrote back, Apple's about the future, not the past, right? And it's not to say you don't celebrate the past, but you have to remember that for a lot of the employees that are new, the past is just history to them, right? It's not, you know, the future is what matters. So those are the three phases that I can think of.
0: Yeah, that's so true, um, and uh, uh, it, it really does change. And you know, by the way, when you get to twenty years,
1: <laughs> yes, I can only imagine. Right? Yeah. yeah, seriously, yeah.
0: that's right. Um, all right, so let's talk about team now. So, uh, and let, let's focus on leadership team. So, you know, you. Built your first leadership team ten years ago, and you probably have shaped it over the years. Maybe you had moments of broader overhaul. Totally. Uh, how do you How do you sort of think about the you know the scaling of the leadership team?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, obviously, it's a constant work in progress, right? And so I think there's some element you know that that, that that's such a truism. I think broadly, you know, what ends up happening is the very early days of a startup, especially if it's your first time, you know, you're not able to you're not able to, nor do you necessarily want to hire all these incredibly super experienced people, right? Um, in fact, like the value prop of a startup is like, you know, the person takes a chance on the company and the company takes a chance on the person, right? In the very beginning. And then later on, you know, you have some proof that your business is real. you raise raised a certain amount of funding, you got revenue and you can have more experienced people. And so, I, interestingly enough, I'd say that we we started out with a lot of people that were like kind of proving themselves you know so for example um you know we had um our head of sales mike schmidt who is so great our first one was basically a sales manager before right like a manager maybe five six people right. Our um our, who, who the person would eventually become our coo allison pickens was like like straight out of uh, Stanford Business School. She'd worked in private equity. She'd never really, she'd done one brief tech startup, but she'd never worked in a tech company at scale. Um, our our head of marketing, who became legendary head of marketing, Anthony Canada, had literally been a biz dev person in my last company. Um, so all these people that are kind of proving themselves, and frankly, early on, a lot of mistakes you'll hear in startups are people that you hire somebody too experienced, and they they want to jump into something much more like, you know, fully formed, Right but these people that are really creative and willing to try things. And obviously you want to hire the right people. So that there's that first phase that I think is pretty organic because you're kind of who hiring you, who you can. And right. I'd rather in that first phase, hire somebody who's less proven, but has a lot of grit hustle creativity over somebody that has a stronger resume in those early days. So that's it. I totally agree with that for the beginning. Yeah, totally. And so then, then you get into this next phase which is, I think, where a lot of mistakes happen because you're trying to bring in the experienced people you're trying to, quote, unquote, scale. We made a bunch of mistakes in that area. Probably other people have as well, right? You know, where you're trying to bring in like the perfect, you know, head of sales who's done it a million times before, but you don't realize that the, that some of those heads of sales were in environments where everything was perfect and they were good right. people, but- They were set up for success with a great tailwind behind the back. Right. They, they worked at big company X, Y, or Z, but big company X, Y, or Z was going to be great with or without them. Right. And so, you know, we, you know, sales, marketing, a few of these areas, I think a lot of companies make mistakes in where you're trying to find like the panacea based on resume, um, and so interesting enough, that second phase, I think we wandered in the darkness a little bit. You know, we had made a few hires here and there. I, guess,
0: I think there are a lot of companies that stumble in that phase. I mean, obviously a lot of companies stumble early, right at scaling your team, but you know, they sort of play through. I think everybody stumbles in that second phase. Totally,
1: totally stumble. And I think that especially in the sales and marketing role, if you're a kind of a B2B company, because it's such an important area, but it's not, it's not like there's no quick fix, you know. I'd argue actually it's easier, a little easier to hopefully find a great CFO, chief people officer, because those can go the distance. But sales and marketing, there's just a little bit more churn and like finding the right person. And so for us, interesting enough, we've had like had an experience where like we, you know, hired some people who weren't weren't the right people, but then then other people emerge like kind of internal promotions, you know. And so that that actually we we had a lot of success then with like the next level down stepping up. Um, you know, the the RVP or the SVP or whatever underneath the C-level C person. And so we we promoted, for example, our after, you know, after, um, you know, sort of trying to bring somebody in from the outside didn't work. We promoted one of our sales leaders who's kind of a first line leader and said, you run all of sales. And like, it was one of those people who had proven themselves amongst the team already. Like the team already respected him. His name is Brian. And so everyone respected Brian. And it was much easier to just promote him through that. And so I think this middle phase is actually hard because you're you're not really a proven company yet. Most likely you don't have total product market fit. Product market fit isn't something that just happens overnight. It happens gradually over time. And yet you wanna scale. And so I think that's where you have to be, maybe give yourself some permission that you're gonna make mistakes. Like, I mean, if you somehow don't whiff on a head of sales or head of marketing or whatever, as a, as a CEO, More power to you, you know, like that's you're batting way above average, you know,
0: that's right. Um, All right. So now, then what does phase three look
1: like? Yeah. So then, then I think there's this interesting thing about like, um, then there's a question of, okay, you've been around for a while and now it's like you've had some great people, but sometimes new ideas, putting aside, you know, the, um, you know, tenure of a person or whatever, sometimes new ideas do help. And by the way, that probably applies to CEOs too. It's always, good to get a new perspective and so we were fortunate that we actually did as you know we did a deal with vista a private equity firm and that was actually a great opportunity because you know the, the way these deals work often is that there's a chance to like you know make everyone that's been there for a while you know they able to make money from their stock and all that and there's a chance to almost like restart with like your new equity plan and all that and it allows you know some of the people that maybe they've been sticking around but they're ready to go do their new thing and they can healthily opt out, you know, great people, right. But they can go do their next thing and then kind of new people can step up. And so that was sort of this, I think there's a, always a forcing function opportunity in a company, whether it's a new CEO, whether it's a new investor, whether there's something that's causing you to say, Hey, let's, let's look at this next phase. So what we do at Gainsight to make that a little more real is we divide the company up into chapters of history. We call, we call these chapters like kind of Gainsight phase one and Gainsight phase two, and we call for short G1, G2, G3, G4, G5, G6. And so what we did it when we did our Vista deal was we said, welcome to G5. Here's this new phase of Gainsight. You know, we, we had just crossed 100 million of AR. You know, we wanted to build a profitable company. We want to be around for the long-term. We had with certain goals. We want to have a, continue to have a great culture, all that all that stuff. And so we basically said, let's build out, you know, what G5 means. And then t- I went around to everyone in the management team and said, this is G5, you know, we've all had incredible success today. You all made great money, everything else. It's it's up to you. Do you want to opt into G5? And there's no negative if you don't. I told everyone, the whole company, like the entire company, I was like, are you in for G5? And no sweat if you're not. Yeah. Right. And so I think there's an opportunity to be bold sometimes and like let the team opt in, uh, you know, and maybe every couple of years opt into the strategy. And what was your opt out rate? Um, so out of the executives, the so if I did like VP and higher, yeah. something like over the course of maybe a year and a half, 25%, something like that. So not a crazy amount, but a decent no, amount. not at all. Like 75%
0: recommitted. That's pretty
1: amazing. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And by the way, after that, maybe the, that cohort might've dropped to 60%, but still like that that actually has been pretty strong at that point. Yeah. And then the last things I'd say is uh, one of the things I, I feel like we're in now is as you build a company that is trying to be built to last, one of the interesting things is like, you look at these big companies, a lot of the talent is grown within. Um, you know, it's like, eventually it's not about hiring people from the outside. Frankly, most of these big companies, like you look at the executive teams, very few people are hired from the outside. They're grown from within. And, and the way they're grown from within is you have really strong early career programs to recruit, but also to make early career people successful. But then the other thing you have is a willingness to rotate people, right? Exactly. So as an example, you know, I, I just had my chief of staff become our chief people officer. Um, I, we just had our head of, um, head of, uh, support become our head of professional services. Um, that that idea of like, okay, you know, yeah, I can find somebody who's done that exact job before outside, but they don't know Gainsight. And like, you think about these big companies, it's actually more knowledge to know IBM or VMware or GE or what ADP than it is to know like that function, like, you know, and so I think this idea of like. The building the institution internally, I think that becomes like a new phase. We're in the I, beginning of that phase.
0: Totally. We, we did that a lot. I used to tell people part of one, one of my speeches internally was that careers are no longer ladders, they're jungle gyms.
1: Yes, jungle gym.
0: Um, exactly. Right? And, right. Uh, you know, we, I think um, when we were at our peak, we were moving about 10% of the company around laterally every year.
1: Oh, I love that you even measured that. Oh, That's yeah,
0: no, crazy. no. We measured, we measured promotions and That's you know terminations amazing. and everything else, and we measured lateral moves. And oh, uh, we found it incredibly helpful. Like engineers can make great product
1: managers. Yes. Great totally.
0: Product managers can be killer product marketers.
1: Yeah. You know,
0: good sales reps can flourish in customer success. So right. Um, you know, giving giving people the, those opportunities is so good for the col- the culture and the well, company.
1: I think a key thing on that, by the way, and that's what I've struggled with, but also had some small success, is well, is hiring leaders who value that versus the leader that wants that person to have done that exact job before.
0: Yes. And so yeah. that's
1: something that you know, you you sounds like you did a great job of that. And like, how do I make sure that I have leaders that are they accept the jungle gym? Because a lot of leaders, you, they're like, wait, no, I want somebody who's done this exact job because that's like what I'm hiring them for, right? And so, yeah, I, I, li- I like that spirit.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. So we've talked about culture. We've talked about scaling team. Um, let's talk about board. Yes. So my guess over 10 years is your board has had a few revs to it. And I'm not actually sure what it looks like at the moment with a control owner. Right. Um, but, um, you know, when, as to whether that chapter is relevant. I can talk,
1: I can talk about both. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How did you, how did you think about sort of growing and scaling and and getting the most out of your board, small stage, mid-stage, larger stage?
1: Totally. Yeah. I think that early on, you know, if you're doing the, not everyone's doing the venture back path, by the way, obviously like, you know, more power too, if you're not, if you're in the venture back path, you know, you naturally typically start out with a series A investor or some early investor, right? So, you know, one or more co-founders, you know, early investor. And then, you know, I think then you got these different sort of pads that you could end up being on, right? So you have pads of adding on more investors. Now, just because you add more investors doesn't mean you add more board members. Like a lot, I think a lot of entrepreneurs I've talked to have been smart about, okay, like, you know what? I wanted more money in the company, but I don't necessarily want more investors. I'm even willing to take a lower valuation just to, i sorry, I don't want more board members. I, I'm willing to take a lower valuation just so that I can actually get, you know, more like, focus in the board. Because we all know that the more people you have in a board, the more people to talk to, the more coordination costs, just potentially the less agility you have. And wow. so there's a path of like, how many investors do you bring onto the board? Um, and does that have to correlate with the number of rounds you do? And then there's a separate path of how many independents do you bring on the board, right? And when do you bring those on? Um, for me, what our story was we brought on our Series A investor, a battery ventures, Series B, Bank Capital Ventures, Series C, Best from Venture Partners. Those were our three official board member investors. And then we had observers for some other investors like Insight and Lightspeed, which I think works out great because you can still get their help, but you know, formally you can still do some meetings just with the board. And then on the independent side, we brought on a gentleman named Kirk Bowman, who is um a like long-time operator sales leader and sort of had that sales expertise. And we bought on, brought on somebody named Kirsten Helvey, who was more of a, she'd actually run customer success. So she'd been our our domain and then at, at a company called Cornerstone. And then we brought on a, um, a long-time CMO and kind of general manager named Sue Barsamian. She was at HP most recently. And so we had these kind of three operating executives and three venture investors and me. So that was, that was the board. Um, And I think a couple of learnings on that. So number one is the board. We were so lucky. I'm super close to all six of those people still. We do things together. We get together and it's actually great. Like if you get a chance to, as a CEO, to actually become friends with your board and obviously you still have to have the appropriate governance and separation, but it really is makes the job a lot more fun. Um, The second thing that I learned, though, is I do think that there's a value to boards being as small as possible. You know, so one of the things that's nice in our new world, we did a deal with Vista and with the, the Vista type relationship, what ends up happening is you basically have like, you know, Vista as the investors on your board. Now there might be multiple people, but they kind of act as one. And then there's, then you can bring out a couple of dependents. So I've got, you know, basically two independents on my board two CEO, uh, one CEO. And then one of the people I'd mentioned before. And so the board's actually much smaller and easier And um, the advantage is decision-making is really fast. Hmm. You don't actually have to have too many calls to make. So I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who've kept their board small, and I think there is a benefit to it. So I just encourage you to not go too aggressive on making your board too big too quickly. A second thing I think to think about then is whatever board members you have, they all want to be part of a team. Like I'm on a couple of boards. I'm sure I knew you've been on boards too. Like, you want to help, too. Like, when you're on a board, you're you're sort of on the team. You're not really on the team, but you want to feel right. like you're on the team. And so how do you actually make them feel like they're on the team? A couple of things. There's, there's I think, the practical and the emotional. Practical, like, give every board member a specialization. So for me, in the early days, you know, Audrey Agarwal from Bain Capital Ventures would spend time with my chief product officer. And he'd be our product specialist on the board. Roger Lee from battery would spend time with our chief marketing officer. And so they would actually get together once a quarter outside of the board meeting. And then when we got into the board meeting, they, they had a little bit more depth in one area. So specialize is one, one way they can get involved, but then also just get them involved, like for fun. Like, you know, we made Jersey, we make jerseys for all our gameside teammates. We made jerseys for all the board members. We, you know, do, um, obviously bring them to all your all hands meetings. They love coming to talk at your kickoffs, right. Use them and use them as evangelists for a company because they, they, then that makes them feel better as well. And then like in the board meeting, as you think about content, obviously all the there's a million blogs about how to run, run a board, good board deck, et cetera. But don't forget, you want to have them be excited about your business, just like you do it in an all hands, right? In all hands, you're talking about updates and metrics, but you're also talking about why you're excited and what, what excites you, maybe showing a demo or whatever. Try to have some part of the board meeting that's inspiring.
0: I, yes, to everything you just said. <laughs> awesome. Um, although it is, you know, it is interesting. The um, Keeping the board small um, is not something I talk about much because for the most part, CEOs have boards that are too small because it's just like them and a That's different. a
1: good point. It depends on the situation. Uh, if you yeah, raise but, a lot of money, they can get big. But yeah, you're right.
0: Yeah, yeah, but but that balance of the investor director and the independent director is really, really important. And it's not that one is better than the other. No. It's that balance is, is pretty key to a healthy board. Totally agree.
1: By the way, the, right now, a former CEO on my board for the first time, that is incredibly valuable. Like, mm-hmm. like that's, that's, a, that's a very specific thing. It's great exactly. to get functional operating ex- executives and investors and all that's awesome, but it, there's nothing that substitutes for another CEO that's been in your shoes. So. Yeah, that's, that's for sure.
0: Um, all right. So we've talked about scaling culture, scaling leadership team, scaling board. Let's talk about scaling you. Yes. So again, not a lot of CEOs go from zero to where you are 1200 employees. Uh, One change of control, probably contemplating going public in the future, you want to go the distance. Give us a couple of the, uh, the things that you've relied on over the years to be your own development mechanisms or support mechanisms. How have you scaled with the job?
1: Totally. You know, it's, I, thought, I think about this one a lot. Actually, I wrote, wrote this blog post a while back, which got like a lot of traction because I think it touches on what we all deal with. And it was called, I guess the, the, it was total clickbait headline. It said, attention CEOs, colon, fire yourself. And the idea basically. That, that, is That's good clickbait. That's a good clickbait. Every Who doesn't love a CEO getting fired, right? And so in that, in the blog post, I talked about the fact that like, you know, every year at Gainsight, you know, it's kind of like a new company. It has new mm-hmm. needs. And theoretically, if you're writing a job description for the CEO, it would be slightly different. And so one of the things I do, I did is I said, okay, let me write the job description for what Gainsight needs now and kind of interview for the job, so to speak, and hope you know, hope I get the job, right? And it, 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 made, it forced me to say what needs to be different. And we actually institutionalize this now. So I have myself and all my executives, we write the job description every year for ourselves and we highlight what's changed, like in, in red, basically what's different this year. And we share it with each other. And it's kind of a good exercise, right? To to really try to like help help figure out like what is changing, like what needs to change. And so for me, along the way, a ton changed, right? I mean, everyone knows, you know, you go from very hands-on to having a lot of scale. You can't talk to everyone directly anymore. You don't know everything that's going on. But I think to answer your question, some things that helped along the way in terms of support, um, a few, few things. Number one is I think there's this, uh, you and I have talked in separate sessions about this idea of having kind of a, a cadence, I think you call it an operating system, we call it gain rhythm, having a really organized way that everything in the company fits together in terms of the operating rhythm. So for you know, us, it's like, you know, literally I do a weekly email of the company on Sunday nights, and we have a weekly morning, we call it Huddle, which is getting everyone together. And then we have a direct my direct staff meeting and we have a business review, then we have a quarterly business review and all hands at a board meeting. And everyone does those things, but ours are sequenced together to the extreme. So we know, and we reuse the content and really organize. And I think a part of the job is improving that process. That's the machine that runs the company. How do I improve the machine every year with my chief of staff? How do we make it better every year? So that's one thing that I think is, is good. It's like thinking about the systems that run your company and how do you keep making those systems better? That's something that I think is a way to think about how to evolve. Early on, the system might literally be, we do okay once a quarter. That's fine. Or it could be whatever it is. But how do you constantly make that system better, learn from other people on how their systems work? That's a good thing to talk to other CEOs about because every CEO has a system. Whether whether they've written it down, whether it's ca- canonized, there is some way that the company runs. How do right. you study that and constantly get better? So that, that's one, one thing I've delved, delved into. It sounds like you have as well, right?
0: I, for sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, the thing you just said at the end, let me build on that, which is you're constantly learning and trying to right. learn. From totally. People, right. So my guess is over the years, you've had good, not just coaches, like right. you know, coaches, but you've also had good mentors, good role models and just sought out other people's like, how do you do this? How do you do that? Like how totally. important has that been for you?
1: Yeah. So I, I can kind of, in that realm, I'd say there's three areas that are three ways I've gotten consistent help and support um, beyond like board. I think board's great, but like three that are a little bit outside of the board context. So number one is I actually do use a coach. Um, I've used, used her, her name's Kaylee Warner forever. Um, and like, literally like 14, 15 years. And that's been about understanding who I am. And so that's a lot of that personal work around like, what is driving me? What What are my insecurities? There's a lot of different personality tests out there. The one that we use the most is called Enneagram, which is a way to understand what drives you. It actually goes back to like your childhood and stuff. So it's all psychological stuff, but it makes you much more comfortable with who you are. I'd say whether it's coaching or yoga or meditation or exercise, like you have to figure yourself out or you'll never be a great leader. That's like the number one thing. Then number two for me is um, a consistent group of peers that I can meet with on a regular basis who really get to know me and what makes me tick and hold me accountable so in my case that's what y- your know, ypo which is a ceo group but it doesn't have to be something formal it can be a, a group of people you have lunch with once a month but i think the consistency helps a lot because then good. you actually have some accountability and really understand each other's stories and then you've got that kind of episodic you know you're at a ceo van and that's why i really focus on learning that's where i'm like okay i'm not going to see these people again for a year or two but like I want to learn everything about what they're doing. So I was at an event just a week ago and I was like, how do you deal with like the balance between, you know, diving deeply into your team's stuff, but also not feeling like a micromanager, right? That's a genuine question every leader deals with. And so how do you deal with that? And by the way, I heard lots of answers. For example, somebody was like, yo, I came from Amazon. They have a principle called dive deep. And here's why, how they explain it. Another one's like, I don't, that's just what I do. And I don't I, can't, I tell my team that's just what I do. And I was like, well, that's not very useful for me, but uh, good for you. Right. And so you learn, and I, I almost feel like it's you're trying on different outfits of like being a CEO, different things that you could be wearing. Right. Like, and you're, and not all those are going to fit you. A lot of people I meet, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And it works for them. And that would never work for me. But this other thing, oh, I actually learned something from that person. And by the way, like a hundred percent of what I do is crowdsource from people like you, Matt, and others, is studying other people, you know, reading their books, reading their blogs. So I guess I'm a student of what it is to be a CEO.
0: That is the number one thing around scaling yourself. I think is, caring, yeah. right, is being a student of the craft. And the craft. Uh, you know, the one thing you said at the beginning that that's so right is, you know, you can have the same business card for ten years or twenty years, but you might have a different job every year. Totally. So learning how to be, building that routine that you and your team have about like, hey, it's a new year, it's a new job description. Let me redline last year's and let's start. Yeah is a great practice. I love that. Um, all right. I have a couple shorter questions to to start wrapping things up. What do you miss most about the early stages?
1: Yes. Um, we were all together in person at that point, back in the old days. So I definitely miss like celebrating in person where everyone is together and you have a big win and you're all together. What changed
0: the most when you went from venture backed to private equity owned? And if you, you can have a couple things for
1: that. I'm sure there's a lot of different. I think the big, so part of it is, I think it was like a chance for us to make decisions on our own. There was like a step function that independent of whether it's PE venture backed, it was just like a chance for us to all of a sudden do the right things for the company. So that was one. But the second one is I think focus. Um, So we have a real clear goal and really good partners on how to get to that goal And so that rather than having a hundred different goals, it was like, oh, clarity. That's the second thing.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Um, All right. And as you think forward to going public, you know, getting to 2,000 employees, 3,000, 5,000, what is the most exciting thing about that? And what is the most daunting thing about that?
1: Yeah. So most exciting is um, being able to, if we're able to, scale our culture, impact more people, both inside the company and outside. And most daunting is us failing to scale our culture and values and not living up to who we are.
0: All right, now here's the last question. If you do another startup someday, what would be the first thing you would do that's like, oh, well, the thing that I absolutely have to do is X. And then what's the thing that you would do that's the most different? Like, wow, if I, you know, the next time around, and I'm not suggesting you'll have a next time around, like, man, I am not going to X.
1: Okay, so first thing I do, again, like we did this time is really understand and define the values and culture. And then the thing I would do differently or learn from is institutionalize those more directly early on, in terms of how we think about things like, hiring, performance management, compensation. Like I always thought that stuff is so bureaucratic and boring, but as you scale, that's actually what turns your culture into reality.
0: Nick Meta, this is such a great conversation. I have always maintained that you are like my kind of CEO. You and I think very similarly about a lot of things. I really enjoyed talking to you. This is going to be such great content for our
1: audience. So uh, thank you for spending the time. Thanks, Matt. This is awesome. I feel the same way about you.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Bolster, the new way to find the right executives. We supercharge startup growth by matching CEOs with transformational executives, mentors, and board members without the hassle of traditional talent sourcing. Start searching for free at bolster.com.